Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, our latest Asia 360 segment examines U.S.-China trade tensions from the Chinese perspective. Jeff Reeves from the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada will highlight what the ongoing U.S.-China trade war means for the Asia Pacific. Join us on June 6th for our annual BC CFO Awards. We'll be celebrating six outstanding award recipients next Thursday evening at the Fairmont Waterfront. You can read about their careers at BIV.com. Tickets and information are available at BIV.com slash events. We're also accepting nominations for a number of other awards, including our signature 40 Under 40 Awards program. You can also nominate Chief Technology and Innovation Officers for our inaugural BC CTO Awards. Applications are now open. Visit BIV.com slash events for details. Jeff Reeves joins me now. He is the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada's Vice President of Research. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest growing region in our Asia 360 segment. And today, what U.S.-China trade challenges mean for Asia Pacific, that's our topic. We're also going to look at it from a Chinese perspective. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to make sure I get this out of the way first. Is it appropriate to say that this relationship between Washington and Beijing is a trade war? Is that the right term to use? I think at this point, we can certainly say that's the way that it's trending. And if you were to look at it as a snapshot in a moment of time, I I could say that's where we are right now. Okay, good. So I'll call it a trade war for the purpose of this discussion. (laughs) Another comment that came out, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson in China says that U.S. action is amounting to economic terrorism. Give me some insight into how China is framing this trade war. Well, to a domestic audience, I think that is largely the message that that China is under attack. So this idea that the United States has weaponized trade is very central to not only leadership statements coming out of Beijing, but media. So you see it out of, for example, the Global Times, where um, editors have come out and and called this a war, Uh, not just a trade war, but an actual physical attack, Uh, and, and talked about the need to to kind of rally the the Chinese public around a response. So we see things coming out of senior leadership statements like China needs to be prepared for a long war, uh, a people's war, a second lo- long march. I mean, again, with reference to the, the communist history, um, basically preparing Chinese people to, for, for a struggle that could last for, for a number of years. We've largely seen Beijing respond to decisions out of Washington. They've been very ready and quick with their responses. Might we see China start to take initial moves to put added pressure on the U.S.? Well, I I think the uh, decision out of Beijing right now, or at least discussions around stopping the shipments of rare earths to the United States, is a a great example of a more proactive approach. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a way, it is a response to the United States' decision to put Huawei on an entities list and put pressure around um, what China sees as one of its important kind of tech champions. Uh, but at the same time, it is a, a very clear provocation from, from China that is an, an escalatory kind of move. So we are seeing at least thinking in Beijing about how do you get ahead of the ball? How do you get uh, away from reacting to be more proactive? And this is a great example of how they're going to do that. The U.S. is playing to their base. President Trump is playing directly to American farmers when he says he's going to provide support, when he's going to impose tariffs on Chinese goods, and on and on and on. When it comes to Chinese President Xi Jinping, what is he 
playing to? What is important for him in terms of his image? Oh, public opinion in China is just as important as it is in any other country. Uh, the Communist Party tracks public opinion. They monitor online discussion boards, for example, and social media postings very closely to understand what the kind of zeitgeist is within China, to understand what Chinese people are thinking, and they'll and they'll adjust their policy. There's great um, scholarship out there, for example, around. Chinese approaches to Japan and how public opinion can shape that. Uh, so he's speaking to his own domestic base as well. And I think for Xi Jinping, uh, the the the, um, the potential costs of the trade war are much higher, right? The Communist Party's legitimacy is built on its ability to provide security and economic development opportunities for the Chinese people. If you take that away, or if you in any way can demonstrate that the senior leadership is not able to achieve that for the Chinese population, there's serious problems for, for the Communist Party and for Xi Jinping. We've spoken before about how China's opening itself up to the world in some respects. How do you think Xi Jinping seen internationally as a result of this dispute? Well, uh, with relation to, to the Trump administration, and Xi Jinping has made it very clear that he remains a champion of, of globalization and, and open markets and trade liberalization. Now, there's certain... Um, people that are quite skeptical about that approach because China in actual form is is not uh, a country that is all in on free trade, right? They have certain um, areas where they, they are uh, more willing to engage with within the international market system, but at the same time, they have very, very uh, tight controls over their own domestic uh, corporations mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and they're not uh, seen internationally as being you know, a champion of free trade. Fair enough. Do we know what China may be willing to give up, so to speak, to try and achieve some kind of a resolution? Well, at this point, um, they're going to see a, a lot of pressure put around some of their, their champion companies. Okay, Huawei is going to be a great example of that going forward. I don't know to the, to the degree that China will be willing to accept losses around that because, it, again, it comes back into the legitimacy of the Communist Party. Right. If you're able to, if you're not able to protect these these uh, Chinese companies, these champions of domestic industry, then what purpose do you serve? So I think it's going to be very difficult for Xi Jinping to take loss around the trade war. But at the same time, it's almost impossible for him to step forward and say that he's entered into an agreement with the Trump administration that is any any way jet- detrimental to to China. Uh, okay, Chinese leadership is very sensitive to this idea of not caving into foreign pressure, and I'd say at this particular time in China. Um, those concerns are very, very front and center of Xi Jinping's thinking. When you mentioned some of the commentary around preparing for a long war, Xi Jinping can be president for life. President Trump, if reelected, he only gets another four years. Can they both afford to sort of wait this out for however long it takes? Or is there some pressure now to come up more quickly with some kind of resolution? So I think Chinese thinking on this is, uh, has developed over time. Um, When President Trump was running for office against uh, um, uh, Secretary Clinton at the time. A lot of Chinese uh, academics and, and policy analysts hoped for President Trump to win because they thought he would be easier to do business with, because they thought he was more pragmatic, that they could they could move towards this model of win-win economic relations. What they ended up finding was that he was the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. And, and now they're thinking, well, so what does the future hold? And they look at the Democratic candidates that are, that are coming out, that are... That are uh, stating their positions on trade. And they see that even if there is a, a Democratic president going into the next four years, it's very li- likely that he or she will have a similar understanding of trade. So for example, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, their ideas on trade are, are actually quite close to President Trump's in the idea that 
the United States needs to have more protection around it, its domestic industries, that it shouldn't be taken advantage of, that it shouldn't be that it shouldn't enter into certain trade agreements like the CPTPP that disadvantage uh, the United States domestic industries. So I think China is looking at that and thinking it's not about waiting uh, for President Trump to leave office. It's about completely rethinking its relationship with the United States. That's so interesting. We know that the U.S. and China have both been impacted, of course, by their own blows toward one another when it comes to trade. What other countries in the Asia Pacific have been severely impacted to date? So I think um, there's an important caveat to make uh, at the front of the, this this kind of analysis, and that it's still very early days, mm. right? And a lot of what we're seeing around the economics in the region. They have political sources at this point, right? This isn't a matter of, of economic structural fundamentals changing. Although we are in a, a relatively sensitive position within the business cycle, a lot of what we're seeing around the movement of stock markets, around um, companies rethinking their business models, company-to-company, uh, -company, business to business relationships are based in the kind of political calculation of the time. So when we hear good discussions coming out of Washington and Beijing that the trade negotiations are moving in the right way, we see positive um, responses in the market. When we see uh, bad news coming out of Washington or, or Beijing, we see you know, uh, stocks losing value. So this could change on a dime. I think that's an important point to make at the beginning. But we are seeing some fundamental changes in the Asia Pacific that I think are, are long-term trends. One is around supply chains. Uh, one is around trade-dependent nations that are usually the developed economies. And then the third would be around the emerging, emerging economies that actually could potentially benefit from the trade uh, tensions between the United States and China. The UN has done some research around who might benefit from rerouted trade. Canada is on that list, yeah. along with Japan. The EU, I think, is, stands to really gain from rerouted trade. But to your point, I wonder, is that temporary? Might it just last as, as long as tensions are ongoing and then it flips back to the US and China if there's a resolution? So there's been thinking in, um, in Asia for about 10 years about the need to diversify away from China for things like manufacturing, uh, of everything from textiles to electronic goods. So this, this thought about moving away from China has been going on for quite some time. Businesses have been looking at the demographics in China, for example, and thinking about the labor forces actually shrinking in size as China becomes older. Um, you know, concurrently costs rise around labor. Uh, the regulatory environment isn't necessarily as welcoming as it was 10 years ago. There's more restrictions in some instances on foreign investment in China. So there has been a movement away into Southeast Asia and in places like Bangladesh and South Asia, India, a little bit more. So those trends have been uh, in play for about the last decade. But this, the trade tensions or the trade war between the United States and China is certainly putting lighting a fire under those initiatives, right? So it's making state companies actually consider this as an existential challenge rather than something they'd like to do by means of just you know, risk diversification. So it's really pushing these, these companies to make those decisions now. And I think it'll be much more difficult to reverse that trend in the future uh, if the current tensions continue as they are. Mm. If you were to take the political temperature in the Asia Pacific, is it one of seizing opportunity? Is it one of serious concern about right. what's going on? What would you say? So I think to answer that question, you have to do a divide again between some of the tensions that I identified. So in the emerging economies, there's a sense of opportunity. In places like Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Bangladesh, there's a sense that they could really benefit from this as, as companies move their manufacturing centers out of China uh, into places like Vietnam. 
Vietnam actually stands to benefit quite significantly because it has a very similar system of governance uh, to China. It has a very active state role in economic development. So it's, it's investing in things like ports and rail and air uh, that actually make it more competitive in, in an international trading environment. Uh, so we actually think that Vietnam could benefit around textiles and other manufacturing in the short term because of this trade conflict. Malaysia with liquefied natural gas, um, Thailand with its automotive industry, all of these things could see short-term bumps because of, of diversification of, of supply chains. Uh, other states, though, the developed economies in Asia are going to see a slowdown in trade, uh, particularly when you think about the trade-dependent sectors. So um, countries like Japan, South Korea, and Singapore that do have very heavily trade-dependent sectors around uh, electronics in particular, uh, intermediate intermediary goods that go to the Chinese market uh, are going to see drops in trade. So within the last two quarters, we've seen uh, South Korean trade in the Asia Pacific drop by 7%. We've seen the same thing in Japan by about 2.5%, in Indonesia about 4.5%. So these, these countries are feeling kind of the pinch uh, of decreased trade demands across the region. Canada has its own issues with the US and China Absolutely. respectively. Where do we fit into this picture? So the picture for Canada is... I don't want to say bleak, but it, we are in a situation where it's kind of on the one hand, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? So if the United States and China are able to make some sort of grand trade bargain, that will include things like agriculture. And the United States will get preferential access to the Chinese market for agricultural goods that Canada now sends to China. So there's a potential that Canada could find um, its agricultural exports to China uh, decrease in light of any kind of trade agreement. If the United States and China are not able to come to some sort of trade agreement, there's also a potential for Canadian export-driven um, companies or trade-dependent companies to see a drop in, in their own ability to, or a drop in demand, a drop in regional demand for trade, and a concurrent uh, you know, drop in, in their ability to, to, to make profit. I think uh, increasingly concerning, for me at least, thinking about uh, Canada, and I think this applies to all U.S. partners and allies, is a potential scenario in the future where we see trade tensions are, or actually increase between China and the United States. And the United States putting pressure on its partners and allies to side with it against China. And even putting actual coercion in place for states that, that don't um, side with the United States with China. We've seen, for example, um, the Trump administration's willingness to do this around Iran, right? So after the Trump administration stepped back and said, you know, we no longer, um, we, we think Iran has violated this agreement, we're, we're going to put sanctions back up, and European states didn't want to do that, the United States actually, second, uh, actually threatened secondary sanctions around the companies that were still operating in Iran. And the United States can do that because the international financial institutions are, mm -hmm. are dollar denominated. So we shouldn't hold our breath then for this imminent trade deal that's been imminent for months yeah. now. It could be a little bit longer than expected. Well, it's, it's certainly escalating. And with every move up the ladder in terms of escalation, it becomes harder to de-escalate, right? So with coming forward, um, Beijing saying that they're going to block rare earth shipments to the United States, I mean, that's, that's difficult to walk back because what you've essentially done is said, this is going to be a lever in the future that even if we have a trade you know, outcome right now that's, that's beneficial for both sides, in the future, these tensions are still going to be there. Uh, so yeah, I don't think that we can say this is going to be a, a problem that has a very short-term solution. And we're so exposed here in Canada as a trading nation Absolutely. right next to the United States and facing issues with the world's second largest economy. What can Canada do? 
do to kind of hedge its bets? Is the answer in diversifying trade? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think it is it is about hedging. It is about diversification. And and in that respect, you know, the government uh, right now uh, is thinking in the right way. Trade and diversification, right? So looking for second and third markets outside of the US and China where Canadian goods are competitive, um where there's a demand for Canadian trade and services. I I keep going back to this opportunity around the CPTPP, but it's a very real opportunity for Canada and it's one that if Canadian firms move quickly on, they can get first mover advantage in places like Japan. Japan is another very interesting case because the United States is putting pressure on Japan to renegotiate its trade deals or trade relationship. Uh if China or excuse me if the US and Japan do come to some sort of agreement around trade there's another potential loss for Canada um not having you know as much advantage as they do right now under the CTPPP going forward There are a lot of countries of course exposed either to the US or China or both what do you say to firms in Canada that maybe just look at the global landscape and say there's too much risk and uncertainty I'm not looking at China or the US but you know even going to Japan Right I wonder what the implications are if, you know, China makes moves in the region or there's issues between China and the US. Well, that uncertainty among firms is driving a global slowdown. So we we saw numbers coming out of the OECD that said um the G20 economies in the last 3 quarters have actually seen an over 3% decrease in in trade. So those that that uncertainty within commercial firms is what's driving that at this point. So it it's difficult to uh, alleviate people's concerns by just coming forward and saying everything is going to be okay because that that and no one can say that at this point. I I don't think that um there aren't good opportunities and I think that firms that do their due diligence and that think about risk and risk mitigation can still make really great investments and there are still great opportunities out there particularly in Southeast Asia and within the ASEAN member blocks. Uh, I think you know Canada's relations with Australia are strong. Uh, when we look at some of the data that goes from where Canadian investment is going into the region, it's a lot of it is going to Australia. So those relationships are still very important, but the risk isn't going to go away. And anybody that claims that they understand how this situation is going to play out is is just simply um, not stating the truth. Jeff as always a pleasure having you on thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. You can listen to all episodes at biv.com/audio and of course you can read, listen to, watch more business news over at biv.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 